it. Sing it, girl. <laughs> Guys, welcome, first of all, first and foremost. Um, secondly, we are back together recording. Face to face. No Zoom today, y'all. Yes, we are together again. I missed that face. Oh, I missed your face, too. Even though we've seen our faces, but we haven't recorded our faces together. I know, I'm so close. Like, if I reach, I can probably touch it. Oh, my God. I wouldn't recommend. It's been a long day. It's probably greasy. (laughs) Guys, do we have a motherfucking story for you coming up? Yeah, usually we do just one and done. But this one's going to be a multi-week one. Yeah. But... It's one you're going to want to turn into. Yeah, for sure. It's wild. It's insane. Um, There's so many different parts to it. I'm excited to, like, talk about it and, like, get into it. But also I'm horrified and sickened. (laughs) All the things. All the emotions. All the emotions. (laughs) But you know what doesn't make me horrified and sick? (gasps) I bet I know. Best friend, Dax Shepard. Yep, yep. You know, I'm the worst because I thought you were going to say the wine. <laughs> but him too. Yes. We're both right, so. Yeah. Either either or, honestly. <laughs> but yes, hi, Dax. Sorry. <laughs> I, you should have been my first guest, not the wine. <laughs> but speaking of the wine, we're drinking some Stella Rose Rosé, okay? Love the name. The rose and the rosé. The play on the words. Um, and hi, Stella Rose. We know you still follow us. Get it together. We keep drinking your wine. It's delish. So sponsor us or we'll stop. <laughs> oh Just <my> kidding. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, I really don't have, uh... Much to touch on? Any newsworthy. I'm finishing Stranger Things. Same. So I'll update my opinion when I'm done. I got one episode left, and then I'll be there. Um, I have two episodes of The Girl from Plainville left. Oh, I watched that. So I'll give you my opinion on that. Freaking weird. (laughs) I didn't get much TV in this last few days. Um, It was more busier with the 4th of July weekend, so I didn't really get a ton of true crime time. I feel that. Rhymes. We love rhymes. <laughs> I was in Nashville. <laughs> Shout out to our Nashville peeps. When I tell you she texts me, she's like, I'm so drunk. And then I was sending her Snooky gifts and Jersey Shore stuff. And she's like, that's me right now. And then at dinner, um, I made us a spaghetti dinner tonight. Delish. And uh, we were talking about it, and she has no recollection. No freaking memory. And it was through Snapchat, so it disappeared. I couldn't even show her. I'm like, are you lying? Because I don't remember that. You're lying. Because I, I didn't, like... I'm not. I was going to say, I didn't, like, black out, but, like, I guess maybe some moments. Because I remember moments. looking for Snooki and Dina falling gifts. <laughs> Damn. Because I went... And I, even, I was even on the phone with my friend, or cousin, and uh, I was like, oh... My little meatball in Nashville, <laughs> drunk. Oh my god, why don't I remember that? Yeah, I I sent a couple of Snapchats out, and then the next day I was like, I saw that they were like delivered, and I was like, I messaged the people, and I was like, oh god, what did I send you? I don't remember. <laughs> uh, 
good times, good times. Well, this story today, um, it takes place in Canada. Good old Canada. I don't know if we did a Canada one yet. This might be our first. Oh, this might be our first Canada story. Hello, Canadian listeners. We love you and your maple syrup and your bacon and your hockey and your Tim Hortons. Timmy Hose. You can keep your Bieber. And keep... <laughs> I mean, I kind of, I'm kind of a Bieber stan slightly, but I, he was my, my 13-year-old first love. Um, this is in Canada in 1987, so we're going back just a little bit. Ding, 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 stranger things. Taking it back to the 80s. Although that, I don't think that was in Canada, but still. Still, some fucked up shit happened in the 80s, okay? (laughs) Regardless. So, this is the Ken and Barbie Killers. Um, Paul Bernardo and Carla... Homoka. Homoka. I am going to start with the Paul Bernardo side and take it from there. Take it away. Tell us about... Mr. Mr. Paul Bernardo. Oh, he was a sweet guy. He was super nice, friendly, lovely. Eh, wrong story. Okay. <laughs> I was like, different guy? Different guy? <laughs> so, Paul Bernardo was an intelligent. He was popular. He was 23. He was from Scarsboro area. That's, you know, in Toronto. Um, he appeared to be on the path to success. He graduated from Sir Wilford Collegiate Institute, um, which is in Toronto, it's a university, and he was working as an Amway consultant. Um, he was very good looking. He had blonde hair, blue eyes. Um, he, he was the prince that every girl dreams of. Well, at least on paper. Yeah, <laughs> from the outside looking in. But behind the blonde locks, the deep dimples, charming personality, Bernardo was dabbling in dark fantasies, uh, fantasies of rape and torture, that is. Uh, He began to indulge in these sadistic urges, and that was by humiliating women in public by hitting his dates. But when his desires weren't satisfying enough, he began prowling at night, searching for girls walking alone. He would eventually rape at least 13 women and yet his thirst for dark perversion was never quenched. Scarborough detectives began looking for someone who became known as the Scarborough Rapist, and although Paul was um, almost identical match to the sketch, uh, the police had made for, I'm sorry, from the victims, um, uh, he wasn't arrested. Initially, he was questioned, but cleverly, he talked his way out of an interrogation, even voluntarily offered to give DNA sample to the police, but they never, they took it, but they never got it tested. That's so insane. It's like someone's literally, it's like he manipulated them and tricked them by being like, oh yeah, for sure. I mean, you could take my DNA. Like, I have nothing to do with this. I want to be helpful. So then they like believed him and like didn't test it. Exactly. And this makes me angry for the fact that he looks exactly like the sketch that multiple people give the description of, um, but the DNA was never ran. And all I can think of is like, 
holy shit, can I speak to your manager? Because someone dropped the ball. Like For real. For real. Um, hi. Uh, you're all fired. Clean out your desks, dumbass. Right? Like, it would one job. Just test the freaking DNA and then it would have stopped there. It would have ended there. He would have been caught. Meanwhile, Carla Homolka, uh, she was 17 years old. She was living in Chattanooga. Um, the old, eldest of her parents, three children, Carla, she set a good example um, for her younger sister. She was working part-time at an animal hospital, volunteering, maintaining good grades. She came seemingly from a normal background that included pool parties, dances, and other suburban activities. Um, so when a handsome man from Canada met an equally attractive younger teen girl, uh, no one, you know, including their closest friends, could ever predict what would one day be known as the worldwide Ken and Barbie killers. Carla wanted love. She wanted love so bad that when she met Paul, she knew honestly she believed he was it and he was her happily ever after. But I'm not going to dig too deep on Carla yet because um, we got some more Paul to talk about. So Paul's very, uh, Paul's very intense. There's, lot, there's lots going on with Paul. But we will loop back around, so just sit tight. <laughs> sit tight and buckle up. So Paul was the ideal child. I mean, parents loved him. They would rub his hair wishing they had well-behaved kids such as Paul. Um, again, going back to the dimples, like they loved to pinch him, and again, the blue eyes making him look so cute at, you know, even just an early age. Um, he was a Boy Scout growing up. No, I mean, for real. He was a scout at 10 years old, and then when he was a little older, he became a camp counselor. Um, he was the most popular one, like everybody loved him, all the little cubbies they wanted to be around him and be in his troop. Man, Ted Ted Bundy vibes, huh? Yeah. Got the the charming, perfect guy going around. Seemingly. <laughs> he became close with the boys across the street. Van, Alex, and Steve, the Smyrnus brothers. Um, they did normal things such as boys do, you know, burn shit with magnifying glasses. They went to school together. They went to scouts together. When they were older, they even went to Florida um, the brothers wanted to hit on underage chicks, but at that time, that wasn't really what Paul was into. He was still a sweet, good-looking guy, um, looking for love and to be loved. He wanted validation. Uh, his parents didn't seem to give him that. No matter how hard he worked and tried, they seemed to give him cr credit, but not very much. Um, in fact, he actually found out when he was around 15, 16, that his dad was not his biological dad. He saw a picture of his real dad and was like, well, shit, <laughs> looks just like me. That's the guy. Um, he was kind of mad. Uh, he was a little, you know, upset with his mom. Like, seriously, like, this is a big secret, a big bomb that just, you know, right. put on him. Um, but Kenneth would tell reporters, which is his stepdad, that um, he didn't care he loved him, and even though they didn't have the same last name on the birth certificate, you know, it was still his son. Um, Kenneth and Marilyn would fight. Um, they would sleep in separate rooms. They pretty much would just, 
you know, demean each other. Um, Paul would learn this would be normal. They fought so much that Marilyn would leave for the weekend. Paul would wander in and out, and nobody even really noticed if Paul was home or not. Paul could have any girl he wanted. Um, in high school, girls were throwing themselves at him. But then he met Nadine, Nadine Beamer, and she was smitten. Um, some would even say that she was his first love. Um, she was big, blonde-haired, and she wore bright clothes. She was very typical, you know, 80s babe. Cindy Lapper, if you will, you know. Girls just want to have fun, right? Right. <laughs> um, Nadine shared an apartment with her older sister and Van, and there was a night that Paul and Nadine um, possibly had sex for the first time. Soon after this, Paul and Nadine begin dating exclusively for probably about a year between the, eight, the year of 80 and 81. Um, Paul brought her red roses, gave her diamond earrings, they exchanged love letters, they swapped t-shirts, and a lot of other gifts. Um, she was very affectionate towards him. She called him scoundrel and he romantically called her princess. I mean, they fell deeply in love with each other. I mean, it kind of sounds like the perfect little, you know, first love. Yeah. Um, as far as sex was concerned, Paul, well, he was not very pushy. You know, he um, never really made her feel uncomfortable. Nadine said that um, he was filled with respect and... Paul, because they chatted length about having sex, that they had taken precautions to avoid pregnancy, and Paul always wore a condom. As far as Nadine was concerned, she couldn't have had more of a caring, kind lover to take her virginity. Um, in one love letter, Paul wrote, Made for loving each other, princess and scoundrel, together for eternity. Uh, the two even drew up phony marriage license in which Bernardo and or, you know, the husband agreed to turn over to his wife, Nadine, all money and dispose of his little black book of phone numbers. In return, Nadine was to give him a carefree and any other favors that he might find appropriate. Well, Paul sounds like a great guy so far. <laughs> so far. Yeah. Um, Van recalls Paul saying he wanted to move in with Nadine, but she was already um, had her security um, deposit down with her sister's apartment that her sister offered. Um, Nadine's friends weren't surprised. Um, they were, you know, close attachment to Paul, but she was needy. She was insecure. Um, the, she was a young girl who didn't want to be alone, and yet she would complain about Paul trying to dominate her and rule her. She often complained about how demanding he was and that Paul didn't want her to do anything without giving approval first. Man, scripts just flip as soon as sex gets involved. Mm-hmm. That's how it goes. Um, she didn't say it publicly, but Nadine's friends knew she was fed up, if not downright scared of Paul um, and what he might do in wrong circumstances. Their love affair lasted from June of 80 to spring of 81. Nadine told her friends that they split up by mutual consent um, because they were worried about strong feelings they had for each other at such a young age. 
but it was more profound that Nadine and Paul were not seeing eye to eye about um, the visit that Steve had paid her. Ooh, not Steve. Nadine was fond of Steve, and the two of them were drawn into necking on the couch. Suddenly, see, Steve saw Paul's framed photograph on the table and asked Nadine if they were still an item. Nadine said yes. Steve pulled away from her and left. So he was like, dude, that's like my friend. Like, yeah. You know, not cool. That's a good friend, you know, being like, um, I'm not getting involved with this. Yeah. Um, Steve couldn't believe his ears at night when Paul stood outside of his home shouting and screaming at him in effort to make Paul jealous. Um, Nadine and had called him and told him about the short encounter with Steve. So it sounds like she kind of like, you know, it's provoking a fight between friends. I mean, yeah, like, she's like rubbing it in Paul's face oh, pretty I much. Oh, I made out with your best friend. Yeah. Wow. So Steve wouldn't go outside because he knew Paul was like so crazy mad. And he didn't want to start a fight. Um, after he kicked in the taillight of Steve's car, Paul gathered up all his presents and knickknacks Nadine had ever given him, piled them in the steel barrel and, excuse me, on his parents' lawn and set them on fire. Damn. <laughs> Don't fuck with him. I loved you. <laughs> okay. In weeks after the explosive fight, um, Paul apologized to Steve and the two renewed, renewed their friendship, but it was never the same. From then on, Paul and Van, they were more closer than Steve. Steve got a little pushed out of the picture after that one. Good thing he had brothers to spare, I guess. Yeah. Honestly, better for Steve. Let's be real. <laughs> better for Steve. <laughs> now, Paul dated many women. Usually no longer than a month or two. That's how long it took for him. But um, the show's true colors, you know, it's a, it's a time frame. Um, at first he was sweet and mild-mannered and polite. But not long after that, he wanted them to do things in the bedroom that was not cool. And in turn, hurting them. And that was not the fantasy these women held. Or many women at all. Paul seemed to have a hard time getting off on regular consensual sex, so therefore the more the women fought back or showed dislike, the more he liked it. Eventually when girls would leave him, he would tell them that if you ever tell anybody what happened, I will find you and I will kill you. Oh my god. Like, could you imagine? Like, I mean, and it happens all the time. It's so freaking sad that these men... Like, come off as, like, sweet and charming and, like, polite. And then once you're in a vulnerable state with them, then they get insane and aggressive and scary. And it's just, like, how is anybody able to predict that? Like, And we've done a couple stories like that, like Lorena Bobbitt. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, we did a couple of these like this. And then you did Omaima. Mm -hmm. Like, these women marry these men that change, like, after the... Inks just barely dry. That's so sad. Like, could you? I just can't imagine. Like, that makes me scared to get married because, like, could you imagine? Like, you think this person is one person, and then you get married, legit, legally married, and they become a horrible monster human being. And you know how many times that probably happens, like, to women everywhere. It's just, it's wild. 
So he worked at Amway and he became like a motivational speaker. Um, he got the tapes and he used this to listen to them to his advantage. Um, he ended up learning how to manipulate people because of that, learn how to talk like these motivational speakers, learn how to gain their trust, just kind of learned how the whole lingo went like. Yeah, so it goes to show how smart he was to like, to just manipulate people's minds. You know, there's, I feel like there's two different kinds of uh, killers or, you know, whatever. There's the stupid kind that just do it like out of nowhere, like no no plan, no thought, no process. And then there's like the intelligent ones. They're still horrible, like but they are like the Bundy vibes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so Paul enrolled in the University of Toronto, um, and on, while he was on campus, um, he was talking to his childhood friend about something he called Virgin Farm. Now, this was a fantasy of Paul's that would have endless amounts of young virgins just in line waiting just to have sex with him and him only. I don't if think... If he waters any... them, do they grow? Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, I... That's, uh... A big dream there, Paul. I don't know how realistic that that dream would be for you. Now, this seems to be where his extreme dark sexual proclivities begin showing. Now, I'm not sure how long it existed inside of him before he felt comfortable voicing them to somebody, but he basically told them he'd like to bring all these girls to a place, breed them specifically for his sexual pleasures. Ew. Big ew. Big ew. He did date a girl named Jennifer for uh, longer than a couple of months. Um, I think they were dating probably for about three years on and off regularly. On August 15th, 1986, um, they were both on dates with other people. Jennifer was 16, Paul was 22. And again, dated for about three years, but Jennifer said that through the relationship, she felt Paul loved her and hated her at the same time. Um, when she said she wanted to study psychology, he told her that that would be good because that's a subject um, she could learn because, you know, she was so messed up, she can just study herself. Ouch. Ouch. Funny but harsh. Yeah, for real. Um, another time at a Halloween party, he dressed up as a harem girl, and when they got to the party, these guys were so... I guess they were probably like more I don't know, popular or more attractive. Just She got real self-conscious about it. And she told Paul that she was cold. And she said this because she didn't want to take off her coat. Mm. He said, I'll show you cold. And yanked it off of her before dumping ice water on her until she cried. And then when she cried, he hit her for crying. Wow, what a sweet, sweet man. Oh, my God. When she graduated from high school, he tried to strangle her with a cord. She could barely breathe, but he did what he needed to do, right? And then um, he turned to her um, and acted like a perfect gentleman, saying, I'm so sorry if I got a little rough, and started acting like, you know, everything was just a little bit out of control. I'm so sorry. It just, you know, and loving on her, kissing on her, talking sweet to her. It's like a switch just turned on and then turned off that like goes into like him being manipulative again it's like you know these girls stay in the relationship with him and he 
is clearly being abusive towards them, but then makes it makes it seem like it's not a big deal, while at the same time coming off sweet and apologetic. Like, I'm so sorry, like, those weren't my intentions. So then they think, okay, well, that's not how he really is. He won't do that again, and then he continues to keep doing it. While Jennifer was dating Paul, Paul was exclusively dating other women. Paul was a looker, and women flocked to him, and he was the apple of many women's eyes. Let's meet Sheila Blake. She was a receptionist at the firm. Um, She thought that Paul was just a cat's meow. I mean, good looking, outgoing, friendly. Um, There was another girl named Lenore. She liked Paul because he took her out to nice dinners. He never drank too much, never got too drunk, and bought her an expensive expensive watch for Christmas in 1986. After they'd been seeing each other for a while now, Paul told her it was time for her to be punished um, for not being a virgin when she met him. How rude. Oh my God. The, the audacity. Oh my God. Um, he had met her in a deserted parking lot of the mall, making her apologize out loud for ever having sex with anybody else. Um, Paul had a lot of issues with Lenore. Um she wasn't as typical girl that he went for. Um, she was older, um, close to his age, but not exact. And Paul didn't like that she was smarter than him. He hated the fact that when she hit, when he hit her, she hit him back. Yes, Lenore, we love you, bitch. And he couldn't stand that when she talked to other men, but she was pretty sure that he was cheating on her so i mean paul the double standard my gosh narcissistic fuckwad okay so she confirmed this one night when she was in the neighborhood she decided to stop by paul's house and uh you know just wanted to see her boyfriend show him some love and when she came in she saw women's shoes in the foray and they were not hers um and she clearly see that so Um, She knew Paul had a girl upstairs with him in the bedroom. Uh, Lenora was knocking on the door. Paul didn't answer. So finally she got aggravated and she punched through the stained glass front door with her fist. And after that, both Jennifer and Lenora were like, "Uh, I'm over him. Like, yes, so am I. Um, You can have him. No, um, you can have him. Okay, so um, neither one of them were interested in Paul anymore. Or the dramatic Paul world. Yeah, too too toxic. I'm glad they kind of came to their senses in that moment to be like, he is he's too much. Now, this apple, it doesn't really fall far from the tree. Um, and by that, I mean there's Kenneth Bernardo. And he is wasn't just your typical D-bag alcoholic father. No, no, there's more to it. Um, He also wasn't a man who sexually abused his own children. No, no. Um, He did it to other kids, too. Um, On February 8, 1980, 57-year-old Kenneth went to court after being accused of fondling the young girl from the neighborhood. Sick, sick. I just can't. And, And at night, 
peeping through windows, hoping to get a good look of women who live there. So Paul was left with a mother who lied to him and was a weak woman. So not really the best family life. He did not really come from a, a strong, structured home. Um, and as you can see, um, Paul's parents did not really, you know, set him up to be a stand-up man. Um, Paul Bernardo, spoiler alert, did not become a good man. No, no. Yeah, I think for sure his, his dad, the relationship between his dad and his mom and just who his dad was as a person clearly kind of can set up a person for failure but then at some point it's like okay they can make decisions for themselves uh, but no he yeah he went down the dark path for sure by the age of 10 he was collecting women's lingerie ads and you know it's just pretty standard normal young boy stuff you know i can get on board with that okay but as he got older he traded in his innocent magazines for hardcore porn and other type movies and films uh, later, his girlfriends will report his violent behavior. Uh, many of his ex-girlfriends said that he would take them into a car into deserted building parking lots and um, make him do depraved acts such as um, he likes to choke his girlfriends um, and he would force them to have anal sex. Um, he was basically living a double life. Um, Smiling, charming, handsome, you know, college. Um, but behind the scenes, um, his brain was just teeming with insane and disgust ideas of fantasies. Uh, he made extra money smuggling cigarettes out of Niagara Falls on the American side. Um, and he graduated from college. Paul took a job as a junior executive at Price, Waterhouse, Cooper, and accounting firm that's in Toronto. After he got this prestigious job right out of college, he really didn't need the extra money, but he continued to smuggle the cigarettes anyway. Um, from what I read and researched, um, a lot of it is just the thrill of it. Kind of like, you know, rich people stealing. Mm -hmm. Not because they have to, but just because they need the... Gives them like a rush. The adrenaline. Yeah. Uh, his former girlfriends continue to say that he likes violent sex and he would choke them with his hands or cords and forced anal sex on him, and he was very violent. He was just a very messed up dude. Yeah, clearly had very uh, deep-seated issues. Paul was steadily dating two women, Carol and Susie. They both knew about each other. Um, they also knew that he would have multiple one-night stands, but... Paul was so manipulative and controlling that neither one of them left him. That is just so insane. It's like, how manipulative could he have been, you know, to like, for them to like, be like, okay, yeah, I can, I can uh, put up with this. That's fine. Because I know, I mean, again, I'm not in their situation. So like, I can't, you know, speak for them. But personally, I just feel like after one of these types of things happened, I would be like, goodbye, or I'm going to call the police. Or... I mean, we share a lot of things with each other, you know. Yeah. Clothes, drinks, food. But I, you know, I like the fact that we share a separate guy. We don't... We have right. separate guys in our lives. Yeah, exactly. You know, like... 
Dude, it's not a not really a, yeah. a good move. I feel yeah. to uh, yeah. to share that. I mean, if you want to take my husband on the sunrise, I'm not gonna complain. I mean, there are some <laughs> days where I'm like, that's all right. He is him. he is all yours, girl. <laughs> <laughs> um, but eventually, things would come crashing down. Um, he had two restraining orders on him that summer. One was Van's girlfriend, who claimed he was making obscene phone calls to her, and then. A later one was from Carol. One of his actual girlfriends said he was doing the same thing to her. Now, in 1987, she told him she was going to the police. And after Paul stopped really dating women, um, he didn't go into relationships really more anymore at all. He just kind of took a break. I guess bitches be crazy. I don't know. <laughs> Which is kind of funny. Yeah, kind of ironic. <laughs> yeah. Um, so... His new hobby began attacking strange women. I mean, hey. To each your own? No. <laughs> I don't know if you can get that at Hobby Lobby, but right. I mean. Right. Um, a little different, unique. Um, so he realized that, you know, it's kind of risky attacking women that know his name and his face. Um, and he realized that, like, he could truly get in trouble, you know. So I got it. Let's attack women that don't know me. Perfect. Duh. Oh, my God. Perfect plan. Um, so he would start to live out his fantasies in strangers and then disappearing into the night. This was when Paul Bernardo became the Scarsborough rapist. Um, and that city of Scarsborough, um, they were held hostage for many years. Um, Paul would wait for women to get off the bus. He followed a 20-year-old girl home and... She did not realize she was being followed when he attacked her from behind and he did it right in front of her parents' house and the rape went on for 30 minutes. And then in the same month, he waited for another woman to get off the bus. She was 19 and he raped her from one hour. And that was again, like out in the open, outside. He didn't try to hide it. He didn't try to mask it. Like he was just... Yeah. And so close to their homes, like... It is crazy that, like, majority of them took place, you know, near or, you know, whatever, their, these girls' parents' houses. He always went for really young girls, and, like, it would always be, like, a long time. Like, I feel like 30 minutes would be, like, the least amount of time that he would do this for. Oh, yeah, they said that he likes to take his time, and according to the article in 1988... Um, from the Calgary Herald, um, the article stated that five women were attacked. Um, the perp was bold, and he would most likely attack again soon. And this was sending panic and putting women, teens, on edge. I mean, rightfully so. Um, Sergeant Paul Talon quotes that this man is a serial rapist and that he has a pattern. Um, it frequents at night with a knife. And he is brazen, and he doesn't hurry, and he does not rush. On July of 1987, a 15-year-old girl, she gets attacked. Um, he climbed through her window and into bed with her. He showed her a knife and threatened her, you know, basically, if you scream, I will kill you. Um, the mom entered the room. She started screaming, and he ran away. Um, it is worth noting that... Another man was actually arrested and accused and convicted of the crime. 
uh, more crimes while Paul Bernardo was a real culprit and he was still walking the streets. That's so sad when other people get blamed and then charged and put away for things that they genuinely didn't do. Like, that always is just, like, so sad and scary to hear. He was walking free at night, following women home. He would grab them from behind, threaten them with a knife, rape them, calling them horrible names, doing all of this, possibly for probably at least another month. Um, October of 87, Paul met a woman who would become his wife, his accomplice. Um, the 80s sick, fucked up version of Bonnie and Clyde. Um, but, you know, Bonnie and Clyde were robbers. This, I think they even had their limits, and this was some too fucked up shit for Bonnie and Clyde. Yeah, it's actually crazy that Bonnie and Clyde is, like, so insanely well-known. Not that that's crazy, but, like, but like Paul and Carla are not that Yeah, they're even like, shit, dude. Like, yeah, no, hard pass. Yeah. Um, but I did get all my information from Criminal Minds Wiki and Stephanie Harlow video that I watched. Um, I do want to state that... There will be more to come. Oh, for sure. So much more. Like, that was the tip of the iceberg, man. Next week, Crystal is going to get into the mind of Carla. Miss Carla. And um, possibly what their life was together after they became a couple. Yeah, and their life their life was, um, hmm, insane... Insane in the membrane. Insane in the membrane. Insane in the brain. <laughs> Dark, twisted, and just all sorts of fucked up, okay? This is just, yeah. that This is just the tip of the iceberg, guys. And again, we'll talk so much more about it next week, but I just want to say the whole thing that just I hold on to is if they would just would have ran that DNA. A hundred percent. So much more would have been... So many girls would not have been tortured. Literally and murdered tortured. and killed. And mm-hmm. It gets sicker. This is just the tip of the iceberg. Yeah. Like, so. and it's just so sad because, you know, he threatened these girls. Like, these girls that he raped, he threatened, you know, if you tell anybody, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill your families. Like, keep it quiet. So there might even be more I'm sure there's more people that we don't even know about that never came forward because they were just so freaking terrified for their lives or... And it was the 80s and these girls were young, 17, 18. The one was 15. Luckily, her mom was there to stop it. Um, But, yeah, and this guy was... He was all the things. He was a narcissist. He was a gaslighter. He was an abuser. He was emotionally abused, physically abused. Rape. I mean, it just, the list goes on and on and on. Mm-hmm. And it's just sad that at the surface, what everybody else sees is just a normal, nice, charming guy. But, like, there's so much deep, dark shit underneath all of that. So if you want to see how it continues, follow us again next week and listen to part two. Oh, yeah, because it gets twisted. <laughs> So, but thank you for tuning in tonight and listening. 
Yes, thank you guys. We will catch you uh, next week. And you know what to do. Stay creepy. And then, no, we got to go. Bye. Bye.